This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, Dreamland. Jeremy Vaney here with a solo show that I recorded many weeks ago, a couple months ago, actually, at this point. And I didn't realize as I was recording it how bad the water stain on my shirt was from having spilled water on my shirt. Um, I thought it would dry and blend in. It was a blue shirt. <laughs> what are the odds water won't just blend in with blue? But it was too humid. It didn't. And I'm a moron. So uh, I decided in post-production to just sort of make it as least blurry a close-up of my head as possible. And so it looks weird. And I'm telling you this because I do, uh, you'll see toward, I think, the end of this, uh, sort of chastise my, the people who like to chastise me for stupid things like weird camera shots, weird camera angles. And uh, so I just want you to know that I'm not punking you by doing that on purpose while chastising you for not liking it, if that makes sense. Anyway, uh, that's that. And now, on with the show. Aloha, Dreamlanders. Jeremy Vaney here with a solo show. Might be a few shows. Maybe just two shows. I don't know. Maybe it's just this one. We'll see what happens. Uh, I had said that I would like to do a solo show uh, on my book, Aliens, The First and Final Disclosure, and actually, um, you know, the material I'll be fleshing out began with the book prior to that, which is, I am to tell you this and I am to tell you it is fiction, um, but it's all pretty much encapsulated in Aliens, The First and Final Disclosure. Um, I consider it a ufological grad course, if there is such a thing, in terms of how we think about this stuff, which may sound arrogant to you, or it may sound like, oh yeah, right. Um, fine. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Um, but first, I think I need to, uh, unfortunately for those of you who are familiar with my um, life experiences, go over my life experiences one millionth time um, for those of you who don't know anything about me, because I see by comments that some people think I'm sort of like a debunker in disguise. Um, and in some ways I am, I debunk bunk, but I'm not like, you know, a professional debunker or skeptic or whose thrust in life is to prove everything wrong because humanism and materialism is correct. Not at all. I'm an experiencer. So I actually uh, like to get bunk out of the way because that's what a discerning mind needs to do. If we are to find the signal and the noise, we have to cut out as much noise as possible. But that is highly unpopular in ufology um, and highly unpopular with a lot of you. you. You want campfire stories and you want your belief system affirmed. And I think a lot of you don't even know that that's what you want anymore uh, because you had an open mind at one point and then you settled on a theory and you have sort of doubled down on that and you don't realize that your mind has been shut. And then someone like me comes along and says, hey, and then you go, no. No, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear its stories. I want to hear what I want to hear. And that's it. Um, but I think if you open your mind once again, like, uh, like you think it is, <laughs> um, and that's not everybody, of course, but a lot of people. Um, if you do that, I think you'll see that what I'm going to present here actually is um, more correct. I don't think anyone has the final answer on 
any of this high strangeness stuff, or else it would be known and not unknown. But it's more correct than than a lot of the stuff that's out there, including aliens. Essentially, I intend to at least prove to you that aliens do not exist. And now hold that thought. I know you think <laughs> when you hear that, there's, you know, like that's pretty cut and dry statement. And it's not. There's a nuance there. And we're going to get to it. Maybe not even in this episode. Maybe in next episode. So let me give you... Um, my background, if you will take this journey with me, I guess you need to know who it is that you're taking a your journey with. Um, I have uh, two broad categories of experience, which would be roughly what are considered alien abductions. Although, as I said, I don't think there's a such thing as aliens, and I don't think there's such thing as, as abductions, I think. But we know what that means. We know when you say alien abduction, roughly what that entails in terms of the details, the images that it conjures up. Um, and so some of those apply to my life. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, again, we need better words here. A spiritual awakening, a quote-unquote enlightenment, um, and very certainly kundalini aliveness. I have that sphere of stuff happening as well. And one didn't cause the other, but... Uh, let's just say the high strangeness e abduction intelligence is aware of it <laughs> and we will get into that in this episode um so all of this is to say i mean as you're listening to me tell my story think about your own story if you're an experiencer and you're listening to this um and even if you're not an experiencer the first thing that we need to understand when we're trying to figure out what this so-called alien abduction phenomenon is about is what are we? What is a human being? Is there such a thing as a human being? Because when we say human being, unbeknownst to us or un unmeant by us consciously, um, we're actually being kind of racist or prejudiced against nature cultures. Like, for instance, when you see um, the destruction of the Earth, um, being cruel to animals, nuclear warheads, and this sort of thing, we say, oh, mankind is awful. Oh, human beings are terrible. Oh, other animals wouldn't do that. Well, no. Westernized people are doing that. People with a separate self-sense um, who don't come from heart, who don't come from their interconnecting nature. Um, that's us. That's our culture that's doing that, which has spread across the world. And not just westernized, but I mean, China does this as well. Russia does this as well. Like anyone who is sort of cut off from nature um, and has set up a system, you know, quote unquote, above and apart from their own true nature, which is interconnecting with all nature, is the mind that does such things. But there are people still alive today. Oh, yes, there are. Uh, First Nations, indigenous cultures um, who have not, uh, you know, devolved that way, who have not separated off into a bubble and said, I'm better than you. I own property and I, I, me, mine. Um, 
but we tend to block them out even just in our day-to-day -day sort of language that we use about, oh, isn't it terrible what humans do? Um, because this implies that they don't exist. Um, and a lot of that is the problem of our, just our education system. I mean, I know I grew up believing that Indians in America were pretty much wiped out and extinct. Teokas and Ghost Horse, my friend Teokas and Ghost Horse might have something to say about that. Lakota speaker, um, I, I've, I think I've had him on The Experience, which was a show I used to do for, um, for Whitley, for Unknown Country. Definitely on my other show, Aaron Doing Radio, and he uh, was on Peritopia, and in fact ended up um, being a third host on Peritopia with me and the late, great Jeff Ritzman. So um, I am very thankful to my exposure to Teokasin. It is he's, he's definitely uh, opened my eyes to things that I sort of knew but couldn't articulate. And um, I, I think that's sort of step one is... What do we mean by human being when we say I'm a human? Let's just be aware that what we mean is, at least in this country, in, in America and in Europe, in the UK, um, you mean that westernized person. Um, and so whether you're an atheist or a materialist or a religious person, you're still working by the rules of the Old Testament, which is like, you own all of this. God put us here to have dominion over the earth and the animals and all of that stuff. And when you have dominion over and you're not with uh, these other nations around us of animals and insects and all of that, then you objectify them and you can, you know, psychotically do whatever you want to them for your own benefit. Um, and that's what we've been doing. So... Um, you're probably saying to yourself, like, why is this important? Or, oh, isn't this political? No, this is what we are. Um, so it's important because in our fantasy of, hey, why aren't aliens coming down and talking to us? Or whatever this intelligence is behind aliens, why, why don't they just tell us what, what they want? We don't even know what we are. We angrily often ask that, or confusedly at least ask that, and we haven't even processed what we are and what we are not. Um, and so uh, we'll get to that. By the way, I had said we need another word for spiritual and enlightenment and all that. Wholeness is the word that I choose to use. Um, because really, I don't want to talk about anything hierarchical and oh, hoity-toity. Um, it really is, one is either awake or asleep. One eye open is still half asleep. Uh, so you're either whole or you're not. You're partial. Uh, and we are partial. We're a partial world. But we don't know that again. So we take that partialness and we call that the whole. And we put all of these things that we wish we were into ideals. And then we put those ideals into idols, into religious figures, into books, holy books, and all that, and we say, let's try to be like those ideals. We'll never achieve it, but let's try to be it. Let's look to these single one-off mutation examples of a Jesus, a Buddha, a whatever. Let's look to these examples as how we should strive to be, but never actually be. Just be kind of like. So we put these ideals outside of ourselves, and we put them on other people, whether they're real or unreal, and it, that doesn't even matter. Like, it doesn't even matter. 
just so long as we have something else that can take the burden of our partiality. <laughs> and we call that human nature. We say we're going to always be screw-ups. That's just human nature. And then we write plays and books and musicals and movies and all this songs, do our artwork about how screwed up we are. And then we look at that artwork and we go, oh, aren't we amazing that we created this artwork about how screwed up we are. And through that artwork and through that symbolism and through that subtext, we can come to understand ourselves better. But we never come to understand ourselves wholly because you can't get there through learning. You can't get there through that type of understanding, through knowledge, or even through subtext. It's not an evolution. Life is not a classroom. It's an all or nothing proposition. One is either transformed into the butterfly or one, you know, hangs the HDTV on the cocoon and calls it a day. Um, that, that is not to say there isn't such a thing as learning and knowledge and all that. Like all of that stuff is, is fine on its own, but that's not what we're going to be dealing with here. We're talking about total transformation or not. And I think that this is very hard for people to hear because not only have we been taught, obviously, to keep on going with that learning, keep on evolving slowly through time, um, or if you don't get there in this life, maybe you reincarnate in the next life, or maybe you go to heaven and it doesn't matter. Um, whatever it is you are taught, you, you know, you latch on to the thing that is most appealing to you to quell the fear of annihilation, the fear of death, but annihilation, uh, essentially, because even with, even those who have had like near-death experiences come back and say, well, I no longer fear death. I would challenge that notion. <laughs> you probably don't in, in that some way, but you do. Deep down, you fear annihilation. Um, it's just that you had an experience that told you that you go on, and so you feel better knowing that you go on. Um, but what we're talking about is annihilation, is the ending of the self-sense. Not, not suicide, not death of the body, but the cessation of the self, which means that you don't go on. There is no continuance. We have to stop. And we will tell ourselves that we have done that. We'll take meditation retreats and ayahuasca and all sorts of stuff to say, look, I've had that experience, but it's not an experience. And if there's a person experiencing it, then there was not nothing. There was something, there was someone, there was an experience or experiencing. We're gonna get into all of this. I'm just prepping you for, here's what you can prepare for. <laughs> and why all of this is going to be important is if some schmuck who is uh, you know, a giggly fat guy you know, from a westernized culture, sitting here talking into a camera can know all of this, um, then, you know, these allegedly higher beings probably aren't interested in the person who's screaming at the government, I, I demand disclosure of like a Tic Tac video or whatever. Um, you know, let's get real. Two years in the writing, my new book, Them, is finally ready to go. It will be published in Kindle and as a paperback on March the 23rd on Amazon. Later, it will be published as a hardcover and as an audiobook. Them is a departure. There is nothing like them. It is the first book of its kind, a completely new way 
of looking at the close encounter experience, a deep exploration of both the civilian and military experience of contact with the visitors. And both have been very profound. Much of this material is simply not known, but I go into it, I think, more deeply than anyone ever has before. I don't talk about my own experiences in this book, but rather about the experience itself, them. Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic says, leads the way and it's best that we listen because the stakes have never been higher. Earth Tech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them, a new vision and a new way of looking at close encounter. You have never read anything like them before. It is the beginning of a new way of looking at our own future. If you were uh, the alien, you know, would you, who would you want to talk to? <laughs> uh, I don't know, the Buddha, <laughs> the the Jesus, or the people who are like, oh, I can never be that, because that's human nature. Those are one-offs who may or may not exist. Um, wouldn't you want equals? Like when you think about aliens and you think about what it means for an alien to come here. Are you picturing a being with technology that is higher than ours? Like we always say we can't understand them, right? Like we could never understand what an alien is. Uh, they would just be too intelligent or whatever. And I, I would challenge that. I think that there is nothing they couldn't describe that we couldn't, at this point, science couldn't like figure out if they just told us in terms of technology or how the universe works or whatever. It may take a new branch of science, but what really could they tell us? Um, the thing that's, that would have to be different is that they are whole, whole expressions of themselves, or they would never have left their wherever they're from, uh, because I don't think wherever they're from would have let them. Uh, just like I don't think Earth is going to let us. <laughs> I don't think there is going to be a trip to Mars that where we go and colonize and all this sort of stuff. I don't think that happens um, because I think we are the consciousness of Earth 
and that were the self-awareness of earth in, in the way that we are and uh, we're sick and so what sick heals or dies so these are our options but certainly we don't get to spread around this is just my feeling on it anyway but uh, we'll be getting more into that and how we shouldn't even be talking about aliens because they don't exist um, which I know that's going to hurt so I'm going to get so much crap for saying that, right? Like I'm just envisioning all of the YouTube comments. Who is this guy? Whitley, where'd you get him? Why is he always laughing? Why is his camera off center or whatever? <laughs> Everybody's so, so upset with the surface level, uh, presentation of things. And none of you who criticize that I have seen actually care about the content. Uh, but it's time we care about the content. Um, because if I have to like go to another party or gathering of people um, who think that because I say the word UFO and they say the word UFO, we're talking about the same thing, I'm gonna scream. Um, because there are so many people who listen to me or watch me or whatever, read my books, and I don't know what they're watching or hearing or reading because they they talk to me about this stuff in the polar opposite direction that I just debunked or that I personally don't even believe whether I debunked it or not um, is not something is something that I am not about. And yet, so I, I in other words, how many of you even listening to this right now can even hear me <laughs> outside of you, you hear me say aliens and buzzwords, right? UFOs, spirituality, you hear these buzzwords and you think that that's and so your mind fills in the rest of this podcast somehow with what you want to hear. And it's not even what I'm saying. Now, this is certainly a harsh criticism of people, but it's also like a wake-up call. Like, if that's you, don't get angry about it. Just be that. Admit it and see what happens from that. Like, have it be a wake-up call. Of, oh, yeah, that's weird. I guess I do that. Um, I know that's not popular. <laughs> Self-work isn't popular. We want to look out there. We want the thing out there. We want the alien, but it ain't the alien. Now, I didn't always believe this. Um, back when I was in high school, I believed I was uh, likely an alien abductee. And into college, I was pretty sure I was an alien abductee. Um, as I've discussed elsewhere at ad nauseum, I suppose. Um, I think for lifelong experiencers, and, and I tend to believe most of us are lifelong experiencers, I don't know that there are a lot of one-off people. I know there are people who think they are, but then, like, just go back and listen to my show, The Experience, on unknowncountry.com. Get it yourself a subscription and go listen to The Experience uh, because you will hear people, you know, within, like, 15 minutes of interviewing them, there's all sorts of stuff that they never connected with with this phenomena in childhood. And the reason that it connects is how much can happen to one person? Like, I saw a UFO, my house is haunted. Um, you know, I have synchronicities that happen to me all the time. Um, I have visions that come true, whatever it is. Like there are people who have all of these things that seem disparate and, and unconnected but just think about how they have to be connected and you're the connection, right? Like how much can happen to one person before it's either that they're delusional, which is possible, 
Um, but I would say more times than not, and again, the experience is a great example of this. I challenge anyone to like find more than one or two people who are delusional <laughs> on that show. Uh, and there are a lot of episodes of people, just normal people, who have had a ton of highly strange experiences happen. And we don't have any cultural context for it except to laugh it off or send them to a shrink, right? Send them to a psychologist, uh, as you know. Um, but nevertheless, they all happen to a person. Um, and you can say, well, that's this culture's version of shamanism, like they're a shaman or whatever it is. Let's just keep it, let's keep it open, keep it an open question. But for me, I would say that um, the dangling carrot that happened early in childhood, because I would say that there is a dangling carrot. I would say that if you go back far enough, if anyone has memories, I have a pretty great, actually, long-term memory. My short-term memory is crap, but my long-term memory is stellar. And I remember being uh, like, I don't know, two or three years old and uh, seeing a parade that never happened out the window of our second floor apartment watching this parade with elephants and giraffes and a marching band and the leader of this marching band looking suspiciously like a long-toothed sort of, you know, Dr. Seuss character looking up at me and kind of, you know, giving me the wink kind of thing. And I ran into the kitchen to get my mom and sister to see this parade going down the street. This was incredible. It was noisy. It was colorful. And they came and there was nothing. The street was empty, as it should be. And they just thought, oh, Jer, you know, he's just a little kid imagining things. And I remember, even as a little kid, that sort of hurting my feelings. Like, no, it was there. I saw this thing. And just as I'm not seeing this thing now with you here, right? Like, think about that with kids. Like, when it's not as though I ran and got my mom and sister and we all and I grabbed them and I got them to come and see what I was talking about. And then I was like, look, see, there it is. And there was nothing there. They came with me and there was nothing there and it was disappointing and confusing to me. So, you know, that is something that if I were to believe my mom, uh, I would just say, yeah, that was like just a kid hallucinating or something. Like just blow it off as that's imagination or something. Um, I could I could have done that and just forgotten about it and buried it. But I didn't. It was always like an intriguing, fun story to tell. So it always stuck with me because I would always tell it. Um, and I think that if every experiencer looks in their early childhood, they'll find something that is that, that is a dangling carrot thrown out from whatever the intelligence is, uh, that if you latch onto it, it starts a feedback loop. There becomes this reciprocal relationship in some way. Um, and then they start giving you more, more experiences, more to latch on to, more to, and perhaps even as Whitley has, Whitley Streber here, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing off camera as if he's right here and he's not, but uh, <laughs> Whitley, everyone, um, Whitley has talked about, you know, do they need us to perceive them to be here? And I think that there is something about that that's true. I think that there is a building up of whatever this intelligence is, and I think that they need us to have a uh, mask for them in the form of either an archetype or some sort of roughly agreed upon imagery that we can all identify with. And for our generation, it's the alien uh, that it comes and 
does boogada boogada boo through. Um, or, hey, look, I'm a space brother, or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> however it comes to you. Um, but it's all a mask. It's all a facade, which is not to imply something evil is going on, even though there's a lot of terror and all of that. Um, I think all of that is something that we need to see through. I think that there's, there, you know, it's no surprise that Whitley Strieber has been the whether he has been ignored or embraced by the mainstream, and he has been both throughout his career, um, either way, he's been the consistent sort of bullhorn for visitor phenomena to say, look, this is real. And he's never been consistent with what that is because he doesn't know what it is, right? Like, so however he's feeling about it that day, <laughs> whether it's aliens or demonic or meditative buddies from another dimension, whatever it is, you can go back and listen to him and read his stuff and see um, not even necessarily an evolution of thought, though there is that underneath. But I think um, just like any person, like whatever you're reading at the time and concentrating on and focusing on, it kind of looks like that. So you're like, oh, maybe that's it. And then you start thinking along those lines. And of course, he's imaginative and he starts going off on that direction and that tangent and fleshing it out and seeing where it would lead to and its sort of natural conclusion. And all of that is smart and correct to do, right? I think. Um, but ultimately, uh, the thing that he is, is a voice for just saying this, whatever this is, it's here and it's not me. Or if it is an aspect of me, um, it's not, it, it's not a psychological dysfunction. Uh, it's something that is both itself and has to do with me deeply. That doesn't sound like aliens, does it? Um, so is it no wonder then that he's also a horror author, right? Right? Like they went to this horror author and you think like, why don't they go to a scientist? Why don't they go to the president or, you know, all these sort of ridiculous, shallow things that, that are like the obvious thing to think. But they went to a horror author, so why not think? Why did they go to a horror author? Why him? Um, isn't it because that's the way that we connect in this culture? Essentially through horrification? <laughs> like, that's kind of it. And that we have to see our way out of that. Like, we are fearful we're fear. We are that. That is, from what all of this culture is, it's a projection of fear. And who better to project fear than a horror author? Who better to go to and say, listen, this is a challenge to all of what you are, all of that fear. Uh, so it's up to you to see this as it truly is, um, or not, you know. Um, but if you do, the, the payoff, if you want to call it that, and I don't, but stuck with the words that we've got, uh, the payoff is, um, you know, equality. The payoff is, uh, you know, a sort of equilibrium in the oneness through the separate appearances that we all are. Boy, that sounded new aging, gobbledygooky. Maybe I'll take that out. <laughs> no, I won't. Um, but that's kind of what it is. Uh, there's an intelligence here that is whole in their own right. And 
needs us to be whole too. Needs us to be whole uh, to communicate with us, you know, and on that level of like sort of creating a partner or whatever, or needing us to be that in order to have equality. But also because in wholeness, uh, you're undivided. And so what they know that we don't, even if we know it theoretically or believe it as a belief system, what they actually live and experience that we don't is the self-awareness um, of that wholeness, of non-duality, which means that they know what we don't, we're a part of them and they are a part of us. I mean, in a functional way. Um, us not waking up is them not waking up. Our partiality and living in that delusion and calling that human nature is their psychological baggage. We don't know that. We don't know how we're affecting this intelligence. Uh, you know, the closest we get to, as far as I can tell in ufology, to that type of interconnectivity is saying that uh, maybe they're from another dimension and we set off nukes and so that reverberates through the fractal and affects other dimensions. Or they're aliens from another planet and they see us doing nukes and they come and they buzz our nuclear facilities and all that. And as a warning, like, you shouldn't go out into the cosmos this way, silly ape. No. No. It's more closer to home than that. It's that we are they and they are we on this fundamental level. And uh, we know that when we flippantly talk about oneness as like, everything's just one energy, so who cares? But functionally, everything is, is and is not at the same time one energy. That one energy transcends and includes all. Timelessness transcends and includes time. Oneness transcends and includes separation. And so one who is alive in that way, self-aware in the onenessy, non-dual, transcending and including way, knows us to be within them. And so our sickness is their sickness. Our denial is their denial. Our baggage is their baggage. We are their baggage. So that's just how that goes. <laughs> and... Uh, I, it's been said that, uh, you know, we can't, there's limits to the human um, because of our brains, right? Like we have, our, as great and massive as our brains are, as wonderful and creative, there are limits to what we could perceive and all that. And that's, I think that that is untrue. I think all of it can be expressed through us. Um, and I'll give you the example out of my life, which I think is more important than the alien stuff. Um, and I, I talked about this a little bit on the episode with Michael Masters when we were talking about time travel, but I'll give you the fleshed out version of the oneness experience. Um, how far back do I need to go for this? Well, maybe let's go back to aliens. <laughs> Let's go <laughs> to, to aliens, not aliens. Um... My new book, Jesus, A New Vision, is not a Christian book. It is not an anti-Christian book either. Very much not an anti-Christian book. It is new. 
genuinely knew a look at Jesus in his life and what happened afterwards, his resurrection, for the Shroud of Turin is no medieval forgery. It goes all the way back and it does record an extraordinary event that appears to have been a body transforming into a form of coherent light. The science is very strong at this point. And yet, how could that be? What an extraordinary mystery. The life of Jesus is mysterious indeed, but the greater part of the mystery is about us. How is it that a human body could transform in that way? Who accomplished it? Why did it happen? What does it mean to you and me about our lives now? Jesus, a new vision, a new window into a very old way of looking at the truth. A way of finding ourselves, perhaps, that we lost a long time ago, but can recover. Jesus and New Vision is available in Kindle format, as a paperback, in audiobook format on Audible and Apple, and as a Kindle and paperback on Amazon. Do go and get it today. I think I, I must have talked about this on Dreamland before. I know I've talked about it on the experience and like everywhere else I've talked about it. Um, but I had an experience. It was October 2001. So it was right after the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center uh, and the Pentagon. And um, I was a virgin at the time. I don't remember how old I was, but I was in like my late 20s. So it was a long time that I was a virgin. <laughs> uh, but I had met um, a gal online and um, she came to visit me from wherever she was from. I won't give any of her identity away, but she came to visit me for the first time. She came to this stranger in Queens in New York, you know, this stranger who was poor and slept on a mattress on the floor and like, you know, <laughs> this poor woman. Uh, nevertheless, um, you know, we thought we were in love and as much as one can fall in love from online, from chat rooms, I don't know that that's possible, but you know, we had all the feelings and, um, she came and my fear, part of, part of why I was a virgin for so long, um, was absolutely has, I mean, I can't deny it's because I was molested as a kid, uh, and my parents, my parents had separated, and then I was molested like within a span of months from a downstairs neighbor. And I'm certain all of that uh, childhood stuff screwed me up. Like that's just what it is. So for any of these skeptics out there who say like alien abductions are a cover for being molested as a kid, you don't want to deal with the real life molestation, so you put it on these aliens coming into your bedroom at night. You know, I'm certain that that can happen and maybe maybe it's obvious that it does for some people, but I'm well aware that I was molested as a kid 
And I'm well aware of things that are not human walking into my bedroom. So, you know, um, and I'm aware that that screwed me up. So that's one thing. But I also and, and also seeing my parents, how they interacted with each other, fighting and equating love with arguing um, and yelling and all of that. So who wants that noise? Who wants to, like, be in a relationship? Um, sex, scary. Intimacy, scary. All of that. But also, because of these uh, alien abductions that I uh, thought I was having, at least, um, I always kept an open mind um, about, like, what could it be? What else could it be? Could I be screwed up? Um, but this incident that I'm about to explain kind of put a kibosh to all of that. Uh, so, where was I? Right. Uh, the other reason I didn't want to have sex or have a relationship, I guess, is because, more so a relationship, I suppose, is because I had read so many of these books, right? These abduction books that tell you that to uh, bring this, you know, to be an abductee or an experiencer and, and have a relationship is to risk bringing this into someone else's life. And I didn't want to do that to anybody. Uh, I thought, like, what right do I have to, like, disease them with this completely toxic, uh, you know, terrifying, confusing, paranoia-inducing um, experience that follows you around? How could I do that to somebody? So, I didn't. <laughs> uh, until now. Um, because like so many people after 9-11, so many Americans, a lot of people started having sex. Or, you know, a lot of babies were made. Um... And so there's something to be looked at there in terms of just like when when put pressed and put into sort of existential fear like that of, you know, we had never had a terrorist attack like this in America. Um, do we start procreating? Do we start trying to create more of us? Uh, I t you know, like, isn't that interesting? Just because I have ducks. I know this is like a non sequitur, but not really. Uh, my wife, Carol, and I have, have ducks and ducks have no hands and ducks have no <laughs> teeth and they have rounded bills and they can, these guys can barely fly. They're so fat. And, you know, like their defense mechanism is procreation. Like they can run away, they can flock together and I guess appear to be big as, as they group together, but really they have no defense in life. When you have no arms... And you have floppy clown shoe feet and you don't have teeth and you have a rounded bill. <laughs> what can you do except create a lot more of you? And I feel like we went into that mode on 9-11 and we probably go into that mode when in panic mode. Um, and I guess I was susceptible to that. So she came over and I've got this fear of sex because uh, are these aliens going to show up? Like what's going to happen? Is this going to, you know, like all of this goes through my mind. In night one, uh, I lose my virginity and all is well. Nothing happens. I breathe a sigh of relief. Ah, wow, this is going on. Maybe I can have a normal life. Maybe I can be a normal person. And then night two rolls around and I have the most obvious in-your-face abduction experience that I've ever had. Um, and by that I mean, I mean, at this point I'd already written a book um, or had been writing a book, I should say, on my experiences um up up to that point well no i had already written it it was already like i think off at the publisher 
which is why I hadn't added this to the book. And I was like, oh, great, a sequel. But meanwhile, it's like the most obvious best thing that I would want for the first book. But the first book I had had an experience, besides UFO sightings and stuff that were significant and, and not just a light in the sky, but significant sightings. Um, I uh, also had an experience that you could argue, I guess, as a debunker or a skeptic was a dream, um, but was not a dream. But you could argue it. Uh, in fact, my roommates at the time when they read it were like, oh, he's just having a dream. He's just having a nightmare. It's like, no, you don't get it. That's, this is like, I had a dream and it was punctured by an actual abduction event. But that doesn't mean that it was physical the way I perceive physicality. Um, this, however, had all the earmarks of like just a normal sort of experience, which was... I'll, but just with these beings, which was lying on the floor. I find my, myself uh, awakened by um, a light coming into the bedroom. Um, so where the bedroom was, there was like a little alleyway between our apartment building. We're on the first floor and the building next door. And there was this little sort of walkway and you could go down into the basement. In fact, there was a basement apartment there and this guy lived there. Um so the girlfriend was was to my left and and she was asleep and this light woke me up so i sort of look at her and i look at the light coming in through the blinds and she's like i say dead asleep i crawl over her and open up the blinds and look out and there's just this sort of blinding white light coming in but whatever it's not waking her i look down at her it's not waking her up so what do i care you know in my tired stupor it's middle of the night um i decide eh, i don't care i roll over and literally like I, I just lie back down and roll over and standing above me again mattress on the floor are these uh three short beings in beige tunics um gray to the blue hue so more of a chalky sort of bluish gray than than gray gray um but not the blue guys that whitley talks about i'm just saying they had sort of more of a bluish tint to them um the big eyes the diminutive mouth the whole thing and they're not communicating anything to me not even telepathically at this point they're just there but somehow i pick up they're exuding this sort of come with us like a childlike naivete about them. And my reaction is absolute body, physical, animal terror, just raw, like, ah, like screaming at the top of my lungs, ah, but nothing's coming out of my mouth. And they're just staring at me again. The, the, the disconnect between what they're exuding in my terror is so obvious to me, you know, impalpable <laughs> now, uh, then it's just raw terror. I, it doesn't, nothing registers except, you know, this fear of annihilation. And the next thing I know, and it's literally the next thing I know, uh, I am standing in my underwear as I had gone to bed. I'm seeing through my eyes. I mean, this isn't a dream, uh, as far as I can tell. But I'm sedated now, and I'm standing in a nondescript location uh, that is dark, I would say maybe cavernous, I don't know, but definitely dark, 
with um, there are rows of tables out from me this way vertically. And on those tables are human beings just sort of lying, I presume unconscious, uh, naked. And there is a light source, I can't tell coming from what, from above. That is the same quality of light as the light that came in through the window, which is this bright white, but sort of diffuse, almost foggy, but not foggy, but a diffused sort of bright white light is the light source coming down. And the three beings that had, I guess, brought me here were gesturing with their arms. They were going like, hmm, like... You know, see, this is what we do for a living, gesturing to the person who was closest to them, who was, I would say, a blonde uh, 50-something woman, uh, long blonde hair, um, lying there naked like everybody else. There was, I think the next one over was a man. They were all white, as far as I can remember, people. Um, and I'm standing there. And they're just gesturing like, see, this is what we do for a living. They're not saying that. They're not even telepathically. But it's just like that's what it puts me in mind of is like show and tell almost. And I think to myself as I'm standing there, why am I here seeing this? And a female voice that I remember from other experiences that I had had uh, answers telepathically or in my head um, because you've always wanted to remember an abduction. And then we went on to have a rather, what I, I remember the quality of the conversation being very long. <laughs> and that's all I remember. And when I woke up in the, the next morning, that's it. Like, that's the end of the experience. When I woke up in the next morning, all I can tell you is I remembered that conversation and I never wrote it down. And, and the reason I, I never wrote it down was because even though at this point I was writing about this stuff and I was becoming a public figure about this stuff, I didn't want this to be true. Like, that's the level of terror, is that even a guy like me, who talks about this stuff publicly and writes about it and all that, uh, when it happens in the moment, I don't, I don't want this to be true. And so I let it go. I was like, nope, that was a dream. I don't want to deal with this. I'm not even going to write that conversation down. So I don't remember the conversation at all as a result. But I remember it being long and um, and a conversation. It wasn't like, I don't remember their, you know, symbols and stuff. I remember like a Engl in English conversation in my head. Uh, kind of wishing I had jotted it down now, but whatever. And it took me, that denial lasted for a year-ish. Um, I had uh, moved to another bedroom because we had a roommate move out. So I graduated to a bigger bedroom with a real bed frame. <laughs> um, and we had a subletting roommate because I had roommates who were comedians and actors. And so sometimes they would go work on cruise ships and do gigs on crystal line cruises, I think it was. Um, so one of them had gone off and done that. And um, so we had a sublet roommate, someone I hadn't met before. And one morning uh, I got up and I was sitting in the kitchen and he came in and we, I was like, Hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. We started talking. I don't know how it is that he, he must've come in late at night. Like, I don't know how it is we didn't meet the night before. I don't remember that, but we didn't. And we, so we were playing the getting to know you game or, you know, we're about to. And as we're talking, um, my nose down my left, I believe my left nostril started bleeding uh, out my nose 
And when my nose started bleeding, it caused a flashback to what happened the night that night before I just woke up to meet this guy. And what had happened was, um, and here's where the Kundalini comes in. And I should, every time I tell this story, I forget that, oh, right, there's this jump the shark moment where now I've got to explain Kundalini. But essentially, what's important to know now is by this point in my life, I've got this energy that seems to come alive when I shut up, when I, my sense of self goes dormant, this energy rises and it does intelligent things that I don't actually have any knowledge of, meaning not that I don't, not that I have amnesia about the actions, but that I haven't learned them. Like it does Tai Chi, it does yoga, it does meditative stuff, it does like Buddhist and Hindu looking poses, it does whirling dervish twirls. Things that I can then, you know, go and find if I look hard enough what these things are. But I, I have no knowledge of them beforehand. But it does these things. And uh, it's kundalini, this kundalini energy. So the night before, the flashback that this triggered was that um, I had gone to... Well, I remember this part. I, you know, this was... I mean, it was part of the flashback, but I would have remembered this anyway. Going to bed, uh, this energy never does anything pedestrian. It's always these exercises and movements and yoga and like all that stuff. But what it was doing was uh, it was pinching the bridge of my nose like really hard like this. Um, it had never done anything like that before. I think it had tapped out some, may have tapped out some lines around my face and around my eyes with my fingers. Cause it does a lot of that stuff too. If I'm lying down or sitting and I meditate, you know, and by meditate, I mean simply shut up. So this Kundalini comes alive, nothing else. Uh, it'll tap out lines and stuff like this. Um, it'll do acupressure, do all kinds of fun stuff. Um, so it did whatever it did around my face and then ultimately pinched the bridge of my nose, which it's never done anything like that before. But cut to sometime in the early morning, late at night, early morning hours, probably around 4 a.m. or so. I'm just guessing. I don't know. I'm awoken by a bright light. Now, again, I'm in a different bedroom. So, but it's still on the same side of the apartment where it's against that that little alleyway. But now the the window is across the room. So if, if, the, if I'm in bed right now, if you're looking at me and I'm in bed, this is a wall to my right. Uh, my door is across the room to my left and to my, you know, across the room to the left-ish is the window. So I sort of sit up in bed and, I, and I'm looking and there's nothing coming in the window. <laughs> like... I'm lying on my side here, and I'm, and I'm sort of getting up and looking, and there's there. it's dark. It's still dark out. And so I roll over, I look over, and where my wall should be is like this force field of this white light. And as I'm looking at this white light, my nose starts bleeding down the back of my throat. And I seem to remember it being my right nostril. In the morning, it bled out down my left. But as I'm lying there, my, I can feel my nose bleeding and it's going down my throat. And so I'm having a flashback to this, right? <sighs> Sitting there talking to him and getting this nosebleed. And I think, um, I think, well, two things. 
first, uh, this Kundalini energy must have cauterized my nose in preparation for this force field or whatever this is, whatever happened there. I have no further memory of that, but whatever happened there uh, causing a nosebleed, I, I think it didn't want me to bleed all over my sheets. But I think also having my nose bleed in the morning triggering this flashback is on purpose too because ultimately seeing that light and seeing that it was the same quality of light from the abduction experience a year prior when I lost my virginity was the undeniable confirmation that that had happened and that I can't ignore it anymore. Which, again, it's not like, it's not like when it happened at the time, the first event, that it was really in question. It's just my own protective denial came to the fore, my own defense mechanism. I knew it was real. And I knew it was real because, you know, even after that, like if you see CGI, like in these TV specials and documentaries, or even just in a movie, you see a CGI alien of like a gray or an image of a gray, you can tell immediately, oh, that's not real. Like the, the unrealness of it. In the same way that like, if you watch any movie that has CGI of an animal, like Jumanji or something, that has an animal that you know, you your eyeball picks up the fact no matter how smoothly the computer-generated image is, your eyeball picks up that its animation isn't real. It's just, you know, you know the difference unconsciously. You just know it. And now I know it with this because I had this experience that was conscious, that I remembered consciously uh, of them being there. And so my eyeball just picks it up. And so I can tell you, now that, like, you can show me any footage on YouTube and be like, oh, is this an alien? No, it's not an alien. First of all, aliens don't exist. But secondly, no, that's not it. Um, so, so now I was out of denial about all of that. And, and in the awkward situation of meeting this subletter for the first time, and I can't say anything to him about this, right? Um, but that's that. So, and, and also, this was, I think, the first time where it was clear that, like, although the abduction phenomenon was in no way responsible for the Kundalini awakening. The Kundalini, they're obviously in cahoots, <laughs> right? Like, like somehow they're linked in some way. And we can get into that maybe in the next time we do this thing, uh, the next dreamland. Um, but I, I think I am going to ask Whitley to make this, uh, make, make these, at least this one free. To everyone so that you get the full story because I don't want to like I'm just looking at the time now and it's like oh I should I should cut off or I should have cut off five minutes ago for non-subscribers I'm gonna see if we can not do that I want everyone to get the full sense of this the full scope of what's going on here unknowncountry.com subscribers have access to a vast treasury of information listen to what dr. Robert Shock said he's an expert on the past, and for that reason, he also knows a great deal about the future. We are re-entering, as you say, a debris field, and when you have a debris field like this, it enters the solar system, it energizes the solar system as you have things um, going into the sun, even clouds of dust particles, for instance, it will energize the sun, it will destabilize the sun. This is what we saw at the end of the last ice age in approximate terms about 13,000 years ago. And just in the past few days, 
more enormous meteors have been sighted, and this goes on continuously, more and more every year. We live in a time of great change in a world that doesn't like to look at things as they are. UnknownCountry.com offers extraordinary information, a vast archive that you cannot find anywhere else. Subscribe today. Help keep this website going because without you, there is and can be no us. Go to UnknownCountry.com right now. Click on the subscribe tab. Get started. So let's continue on just with this, how they're not aliens 101. <laughs> they're not aliens uh, because no alien civilization is using their hard-earned tax dollars, their engineering know-how, and their ability to blast off their planet or through a dimension, through a wormhole, to come abduct some dude in Queens um, the day after he loses his virginity as a joke because I'd spent my life fearing having sex and then I have sex and they don't show up and then the next day they do show up. That's kind of a sadistic, weird joke, right? That's more of a trickster thing than anything. Uh, and this is where George Hansen, who's the trickster theorist, the psi researcher who wrote The Trickster and the Paranormal, this is kind of where his work comes into play, where it's like, of course that happened. Of course. That's not something that another civilization does. <laughs> At least not one in the way that we understand them to be. Uh, so if you believe what I'm telling you, and you, you know, why not? You believe all that other crap you read. <laughs> why, not, why not believe what I'm telling you? Then you got to admit that that, kind of flies in the face of what the disclosure movement at least is about, which is like, there must be aliens here and we need to get the government, and the military to military to tell us what they know. Uh, no, <laughs> this is far more intricate than that. And I guess I will get into in this episode, why they're not aliens even further and just say what the nuance is. The reason they're not aliens because at this point you could say, well, what you've just described could still be a non-dual consciousness interacting with and through us, but also be from another planet in this universe. Maybe they're from another dimension. Maybe it's something else, but it could still be aliens, quote unquote, enlightened or whole aliens. Um, and that's true. And my answer to that is, when I say that there's no such thing as aliens, I don't mean to imply that I 100% know where they're from, although I do speculate, and I think it's informed speculation in my books, and I will do so here, that they're not from another planet in this universe, but I could be wrong. They could be from another planet in this universe. My point is that there's no such thing as aliens because the word alien is a westernized construct. It is of this partial westernized mind. If you go to any indigenous culture, any First Nation, I can't think of one. I don't know them all, of course, but I can't think of one that 
uses the word alien. I mean, they may now because they've been westernized, you know, and they've got to like talk to us about this stuff if they do it all, you know. But in their own indigenous language, there's no word for alien because they know us all as nations. They, they do know us all as interconnecting beings, not just so-called humans, not just plants and animals, all rocks, the cosmos, beings from other planets, you know, whatever it is, um, we're all family. We're all of the same stuff. We are oneness shattered. And when you say alien, you're implying something that is not you. In fact, something so foreign that you should maybe protect yourself, have some fear, have a defense mechanism ready. Um, but again, that's a Western construct. And so we're projecting onto them this fear, not of what they are, but of what we are. This fear of how we behave, this fear of how we see the world and how that has screwed us up, <laughs> right? And we put that onto them. So in the book, I, I talk about how interesting it is that a lot of um, abduction literature uh, tends to mirror our own colonialization, our own fears of slavery, our own fears of black people, fears of Indians. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's no secret that ufology is predominantly white, predominantly male. Um, and if this is uncomfortable for people and too political, tough, like this is the reality, folks. If you want to see what's beyond this reality, you have to deal with this reality. You know, like just like the death of self really means the death of self. You can't bring you with you when you go. You can't have an experience and uh, a deathy type experience and bring that to you and collect around you and become a master of something. Um, let's get real. Let's have the grad student program here. <laughs> uh, and part of that is realizing what we're what we're saying to ourselves through abduction testimony. And I would I would be quick to add probably mostly hypnotically retrieved abduction testimony um, because hypnosis, as I've said, ad infinitum here, which I know is at odds with people, and that's fine. It's the fact. The scientific fact is that hypnosis is a decent tool uh, for behavior modification. You want to quit smoking? You want to get over your PTSD? Um, you want to lose weight, maybe hypnosis has something for you. But if you want memory retrieval, if you want to get at that missing time or whatever that is, well, you're not in luck. It's actually not good for that. You've been lied to by movies and television and the cottage industry that is ufology. And maybe they were ignorant at first, but they're not ignorant now. Now they are willfully ignorant. <laughs> now they are, you know, fighting for their lives here because they built this storyline, this mythology on it. But if, if you, you know, believe the science, uh, which is pretty irrefutable, you can't just say, well, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's no baby in that bathwater. It's all got to go. We've got to start over. And how liberating that is, because finally, maybe we can get to the truth when we've gotten away from, you know, 
the the sci-fi story of malevolent doctors doing malevolent doctor things or hybrid takeovers or any of this stuff. Um, and to actually see what those storylines are. Um, I mean, when you hear about a mantis being who's like the overseer to uh, these slave greys, I mean, why is this the predominant story when, I mean, this is just one example of like the mantis being, because I was talking to somebody about this recently and it came up as like, um, what about all these mantis being stories where, where it's kind of like love and light, you know, where they're posit these positive experiences. How does that fit into the colonial slavery thing? And it's like, my point is, if you ask anyone what the main storyline is, what you think about when you think about mantis beings, I bet what comes to mind isn't that, but is like, oh, they're an overseer. They have these drone worker bee greys and they're the overseer. That's what comes up through the literature a lot, through the hypnotically retrieved literature. And so that actually is my point, is that experiencers when they don't do the hypnosis, have far different um, experiences or interpretations of experiences than when you have it handed to you on a platter through the co-creation of a false narrative with a hypnotist who has an agenda. Never mind, you know, a hypnotist, period. But let's face it, in ufology, they're not just like, maybe they were at some point, there was some objective hypnotist somewhere. But now... If you go to a hypnotist, you know who you're going to. You've read their books. You know, you agree with them already. You know what their storyline is. And lo and behold, you retrieve that storyline. Wow, isn't that amazing? Um, so let's just throw all of that out. Let's see it for what it is. Uh, it, it is no different than, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, even though I, Maria something or other, um, I think it is. But the artist, you, some of you will know who I'm talking about. There was an artist who did a very long, I think the longest, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, I don't know, art exhibit, live art exhibit in history where she sat in an art gallery and, and you sit across from her and she's wearing plain clothes and like no makeup and she's just looking, no expression, expressionless. And you come and you sit across from her for as long as you want. And, I mean, it's a social experiment, really. <laughs> Most people kind of went crazy. Some people came in with costumes. Some people came in, like, dressed up in outlandish outfits and stuff, tried to make her laugh, tried to get a reaction. But a lot of people got angry with her. Some people, men, tried to touch her sexually. Um, you know, all of this... Here's just a blank slate of a woman sitting across from you and you can't stand it. You can't stand it to the point, so many of us, that you go nuts projecting onto her your anger and your your whatever, your frustration and all of this stuff. It just comes out. Same thing happened with COVID, right? So many people were stuck in their houses and couldn't stand being alone or being with their families or being confined or or the change in their routine, whatever it is, that so many of us went crazy. So... When I say we went crazy, what I really mean is we're crazy. And we had that craziness exposed, exposed to ourselves, which is a nice opportunity for a healing moment that so many of us refused to take because we went further down the crazy rabbit hole instead. Uh, because that's the easiest thing to do, to look at ourselves and to understand what we actually are. 
And right now we're talking about it sort of in a psychological framework, but beyond just dealing with our psychological baggage, the totality of the psyche of man, of westernized mind, is uh, a thing that needs to go pop. It is a bag that needs to drain out. <laughs> it's a cyst more than a bag. <laughs> and we need, we need to get the pus out. Uh, or we're never going to figure out what the so-called other is, this other intelligence that is attached to us and speaking to us, speaking to us unconsciously, subverting the self and the ego to speak to us on an unconscious level, uh, but nevertheless also appearing enough in the skies to, um, you know, people who should know, like pilots and military and whatever. Enough, just enough to keep them in the mainstream, right? To keep them in the pop culture, you know, which is our culture. <laughs> uh, it's working on those levels. This intelligence is working on those levels. And so I think I've just demonstrated and also, you know, what I mean by they're not aliens, wherever they're from, there's no such thing as an alien. There's just this interconnecting intelligence, wherever it's from, that needs us to wake up. Because us waking up is them waking up. It's one waking oneself up. It's non-dual mind waking up the sleeping dual illusion, you know? Um... And again, there are people who say, well, we can never do that. Have you tried? Probably you have, and that's the problem. Uh, because to wake up out of all of this stuff is to be no stuff, is to be nothing, nothingness. And how does one be nothing if you're trying to do something to be nothing? Well, there's a problem there. It's <laughs> right, it's pretty self-evident. So no amount of conversation is gonna get us there. Right? Like, clearly, I had a conversation with these beings. I, I, the least part of it I remember, which is saying, hey, why am I seeing this? And, oh, you're seeing this because you wanted to remember an abduction. So they can speak English, and I speak English. They could just come to me and tell me this stuff. But that's not how it works, generally. Uh, and I would submit to you that it doesn't work that way because speaking to us in English, having handshake deals with our president... Waking the abductee in the night and saying, okay, here's what I'm going to do now, um, is to no effect. They, the, the person who you and I are, the sleeping being, the self, is the illusion that needs to, the pus sack that needs to pop. <laughs> Let's use that again. It's the illusion that needs to go and vanish for the, the real to be the case, for the self-awareness of that real, of truth, of nothingness, which is consciousness per se, which we'll get into. Uh, maybe we'll get into that next time. I'll have to look at the clock here. Um, but for that to be the self-awareness through the body, through the vessel, not you, uh, not you who are actually a self, you know, are a projection of the brain, uh, whether you know that or not, <laughs> that's what you are. Uh, if For that person to stop being projected 
the brain has to get it. The brain, the, the, the meat of you, the organism listening to this right now through the ears has to understand this so deeply uh, that it dissolves you because it sees that the, the seeker, which is essentially what you are, this defense mechanism slash seeker, this fear slash seeking a way out of the fear, seeking wholeness, seeking what you truly are, this seeker um, can find a lot of things. But one thing it can't find is uh, that which exists when the seeker does not. And another word for that is timelessness. You can't find timelessness through any method in time, through any method of time. I know we've been told differently. I know we've got plenty of spiritual paths and all that. We've got all this DMT lying around. But that brings you to something else. That brings you to further illusion. That brings you to more thought, thought constructs, which the universe will gladly provide you to keep you here. And we'll talk about that next time. But just know that there is indeed an intelligence that is both not you and very intimately you that needs you to wake up. And I guess if you think of it like, you know, all beings, you know, as a stream, but we're blocked off, we've damned ourselves off. So the flow is interrupted. And these other beings need that flow to not be interrupted. And you can see this in nature just here on earth where, you know, Earth herself, all of her beings, need us to undam ourselves, uncork ourselves here, as it were, so that the flow can continue. Because otherwise, we're going to kill ourselves off and take everyone with us when we go. That's what we're doing. That's what global climate change is. That's what pollution is. That's what destroying the food chain is. All of this stuff. All of, I mean, we are life, and all we do is kill life, <laughs> right? Like, for what? Well, for our own selfish gain. But what's our actual selfish gain? It's just maintaining the lifestyle that we're used to. And it's not even comfortable. Like, you can't even lie down in bed and be comfortable all night, right? Like, you can't sit in a chair and be comfortable forever, you got to move eventually. So there is no such thing as like the perfect comfort. Everything is uncomfortable, but we try to make things as comfortable as possible and we try to preserve that. And even when it becomes discomfort, well, it's at least the discomfort that we know and we can work around. And then that's our life. We are that discomfort. We are the ability to uh, live semi-comfortably in denial. Um and why we're born this way, and not just as our whole selves, well, maybe we'll get into that too. Um, but anyway, maybe that's enough for now. Maybe that's maybe that's too much for now. I hope this isn't too overwhelming. Um, there's stuff I wanted to get into in this episode that I didn't, but I think we need to take this slowly and, you know, see if you're still with me here on the, with this. Um, because again, I know... It's a lot, and it's different directions, and some of it you might be used to, some of it not, and some of it are words that you've heard but used differently because, um, you know, 
these ufology and the new age and that much like anywhere you know tends to steal words tends to co-opt language and i'm stealing it back <laughs> you know because there are no other words for me to use i have to use the same words that that the new age uses and that because <laughs> i don't know other languages so yeah but just know that we don't mean them the same way and i'm going to try to explain what i mean as i go along here and um ultimately i think that is what the job of the experiencer is if we have a job at all it is to be able to articulate this um as well as possible uh but not get bogged down in self-identifying as an articulator because that's when we start just telling campfire stories that's why like i roll my eyes and I'm like ugh, i gotta tell my story again i don't want to tell my story again i want us to be at a point in ufology at least and we're not going to be, but I would like it, where we can move on, where we can start, you know, okay, we get it. You've had these abduction experiences. You've had these enlightenment experiences. Now what? You know, it, it's the thing that, that me old broadcast partner, Jeff Fritzman, used to say about ghost hunters. You know, this show has been on for a gajillion years, gathering all this data. Now what? We get it. We get it. You've got a voice. You've got an EVP. You've got some readings on a thing, on a machine. You felt something go through you. Now what? What does it mean? And we never quite get to that part because we're still thrilled. We still feel something, right? Physically, even. That little googly feeling in your, your tummy. Just talking about this stuff. That feels like the depth. Just being able to talk about it. And that's not the depth. That pang that you feel and that little sense of excitement or fear, like a roller coaster that you feel you know, with mystical experiences and just talking about them. And that's not depth. That's just a physiological reaction to talking about something. <laughs> and, and that's hard to see through because, again, we've all been trained or trained ourselves to stay away from what this stuff ultimately means because it ultimately means the death of self. And we don't want to have a death of self without knowing that there's a rebirth or, you know, that it's just an experience and we'll be okay in the end. And whether that's true or not, whether, you, you know, you are okay in the end or not, um, you have to throw it away. To have a death of self, you have to throw all of it away. You have to be the blank slate. And that's it. But we'll get into more of what that means. This Kundalini thing, the so-called enlightenment experience that I talked about on the time travel show. Um, we'll, I'll flush more of that out next time. Um, I hope that this has made some semblance of sense. Um, I was going to like jot down notes and all that, and then I didn't. <laughs> in fact, I'm recording this in a location where I, I couldn't find my own book. And I thought, I, well, maybe I brought it over already to this place and I didn't. So, uh, that's okay. I, I feel like off the cuff is more of a heart to heart as much as you can get through a camera. So I hope that comes through. And if you find this again, upsetting or grating or whatever, um, instead of coming at me with it, why don't you look at why that is? And if your answer is because you, Jeremy are laughing too much or you're arrogant or you're blue, Forget the presentation. This this is what it is. 
Uh, and I can get into what laughter is uh, for, because it is a language and it is for something. Um, we use it for a lot of things, but much like I'm talking about this other stuff, there's what we use it for commonly, and then there's what it actually is meant for. Um, but I think I'm going to be writing about that soon, so maybe I won't include that in any of this. Just know that, that that's a fact. But beyond that fact is um, that whatever problems you have, my microphone is too low, there's a bird chirping in the background, whatever it is, see past the presentation. Be the open-minded person that you think you are. And understand what's being communicated to you because i am an imperfect communicator as are we all that that's just what it is but ain't no one else going to have this conversation with you so you can relish it or you can throw it away <laughs> and ultimately i think um you should you should hear it and understand it and then at the end of it get rid of it in the natural way that one must because all things must go for nothingness to be the case but not as a denial of like, oh, I'm not going to listen to this guy. He's crap. I want Whitley back. I want to hear stories. I want to hear theories. I want to hear, I want to feel, you know, that's the guy I jive with. And I don't really jive with this guy. You may not jive with this guy. And this guy might not be around for much longer on this show. Um, simply because, you know, if I'm talking to a wall, there's no point. But show me something here, folks. Show me that you are mature enough to see past my immaturity <laughs> and listen to what I'm saying and and go, okay, maybe this guy is, uh, his personality smacks of hypocrisy, but what's being said here? Um, because I, I'll agree to all of that. Um, I won't agree that I'm lying to you because I'm not or, or exaggerating any of my stuff because I won't, um, but... No, I, I get that this is an imperfect critter to, to look at in here, to be able to hear anything of depth. But that's, hey, that's your challenge. That's <laughs> like, that's like everything else, right? I mean, for some reason we get this when we like, look at the Karate Kid with Mr. Miyagi or Star Wars with Yoda or any Asian cinema movie having to do with Kung Fu, where the master is like a homeless, you know, trickster critter. Uh, but like we get it in, in the sci-fi sense of it, the archetypal sense. But when it's an actual person sitting across from you who is self-aware of his foibles, um, for some reason, we don't actually want to hear that. Something to think about. That's interesting. Um, anyway, this uh, trickster critter is going to go away. I will see you in a month. Whitley will be back next week. Um, whether you agree with anything I'm saying or disagree, just ponder it a little more than throw it away. That's all I ask. And I don't get paid for this. That's my payment. My payment is that you hear, that you understand, and then decide from that whether you're going to carry on with this or not. Um, and you let me know, because I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste my breath. And I certainly don't want to do superfluous interviews with people just to have content. So um, I plan on doing, like I said, at least one more of these, maybe two more. 
but I'll know from your feedback whether I should. So bring that feedback to the message board, YouTube, where, wherever it is that you're listening to this. Um, uh, I'm sure I will see your feedback somehow, some way. Uh, is it worth going on with one, maybe two more of these shows or not? Um, and um, if you think so, if enough of you think so, then I'll carry on. If not, I can go away. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not here for me. <laughs> I'm here to help Whitley, one, and also because I thought that there was an audience that I could uh, bring with me uh, to where I feel we need to go, uh, which is away from the mess that we've created of ufology. But if people aren't ready for that, or if you find me saying people aren't ready for that is condescending, and what I really mean is people don't want to do what I want to do, whatever, uh, then I'm good. I'm good going back to my own corner of the world and talking to people who want to hear it. Um, that's fine. Let me know. And if you are interested in this and you want like a more concise version, do consider picking up Aliens, The First and Final Disclosure, which I've given you here. It's that aliens don't exist <laughs> because there's no such thing. It's a westernized construct. That doesn't mean the intelligence doesn't exist. Oh, it very much exists. It just ain't alien. And uh, the best way to see that is to not see with a westernized mind anymore, folks. So let's get going. Till next time, folks. I will see you in a month. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>